and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing in capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. On today's show, quantitative investing and more with my guest, John Chisholm. John is a CFA charter holder and co-CEO of Acadian Asset Management, a global investment management firm that specializes in systematic investment strategies. Acadian manages more than $100 billion on behalf of institutional investors around the world. John and I talk about Acadian's approach and where he sees the most promising innovations taking place in today's quant investing world. I also ask John about building a firm culture that is suited to attracting and retaining data scientists and machine learning experts, and what investors who want to work in this field need to know. Some of the other topics we cover include ESG investing and the outlook for value. Now, this week, for the first time, I've added a third closing question. I got the idea after listening to an episode of This American Life that first aired back in 2001 that was all about superpowers. In Act 1, John Hodgman conducts an informal survey in which he asks the age-old question, which is better, the power of flight or the power of invisibility? Which would you choose? Stick around to the end to hear John's answer. And now, please enjoy today's conversation with John Chisholm. John Chisholm, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, I'm delighted to have you here today. You know, we're having this conversation um, at a momentous time in the U.S. Um, today is the first full day of the, the new Biden administration. And yesterday, Inauguration Day, which was January 20th, was actually the first anniversary of the first coronavirus case in the U.S. So how optimistic are you as you look out at the new year? Well, I, I would say it's been a very dramatic year. The past 12 months have been very dramatic, um, both in the U.S. And, and around the world with the coronavirus situation. And I'm, uh, I would say I'm very optimistic in terms of the uh, some of the fundamental things that are happening. So the fact that we have vaccines, production is, uh, is ongoing and is increasing, um, that we can see a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of coronavirus. Uh, if you're asking specifically about equity markets, I would say it's been actually equity markets have performed very strongly relative to the underlying um, fundamentals. Um, the outlook going forward, I think, is for, you know, at best, fairly modest returns and some volatility. So I'd say the equity market outlook, in contrast to what's happening in most people's lives, those challenges are going to be perhaps a little bit greater um, focused when you're focused on markets. So, John, you're a quant, and you've been a quant from long before the term uh, became such a catch-all word. So for the listeners who might not be familiar with Acadian, tell us a bit about your approach at Acadian. And I'm also really interested to learn which directions you see the most promising innovations taking place in today's quant investing community. Absolutely. So just for, for folks who don't have a lot of, um, a lot of orientation in terms of quantitative firms, uh, what we do is we we have a very disciplined investment process that we apply in a very consistent way. Uh, we're often described as being model-driven in the sense that we build models that help us predict returns. So if we're investing in individual securities and stocks, 
we would build models that predict security returns based on fundamental and other attributes of companies. And we would implement those models through a very a structured approach, in Acadian's case, using an optimizer to help us make buy and sell decisions um, at the individual company level. Um, and that, that kind of approach, I think, takes away some of the behavioral uh, errors that investors are often prone to make. Um, so it gives you some structure. Um, historically, one of the challenges with quantitative approaches was that you were primarily basing your investment decisions on fundamental data like earnings data, you know, balance sheet information, you know, typical financial data. Um, that's changed a lot in the last several decades. So today, we have a much greater breadth of data sources available that can help inform us about which companies are attractive and which are less attractive. And so the, the quantitative processes in some ways have gotten to be much more fundamental in terms of, uh, in terms of how they work while maintaining that empirical component of you've got to be able to prove that the tools that you're using to predict returns actually work in predicting returns. So in terms of the, the second part of my question, where you're seeing sort of most promising innovation taking place today in, in, in terms of quant investing? Yeah, I'm sorry. So, so that really relates to um, in two things. One is the data that we use. So this, when I talked about the breadth of the data that we have access to today, uh, really exploding. And it's not just you know financial data. It's uh, data that relates to um, very much qualitative information about companies, you know, management quality, how do you assess that? Um, today, um, some of the data that we have access to uh, allows us to do a much better job of that than was possible 10 or 20 years ago. And then the second part of that is how to interpret that data. Um, uh, one of the interesting things that's changed in the last 15 years is the application of machine learning um, and other AI types of tools to uh, understanding the relationships between that data and between company returns. So today, we can not only, we not only have access to this really interesting data, this really rich set, set of data on companies, but we can also um, do a much better job of interpreting that and understanding to what extent does it influence returns and how best to use it using these machine learning techniques. And that represents, again, a significant change in both what, what Acadian does and what the industry is doing over the last 10 years or so. So I heard a terrific podcast that you did, it must have been a couple of years ago, when you talked about how when you started out at the firm, you know, quant was not as sophisticated as it is uh, nowadays. You said there wasn't any machine learning, there wasn't any big data. I think your term was there was little data and statistics. And of course, you know, a lot has changed since then. There have been these huge leaps in terms of machine learning and data science. And I'd love to spend just a couple of minutes thinking about sort of culture. And, and my question really is, how do you build a culture that is suited to attracting and developing data scientists and machine learning experts? So particularly the PhD level people who like to publish and collaborate uh, on their work. And that's not really an approach that's that practical for a quant fund. So how do you go about it? Absolutely. I, I think one of the key things is how do you attract and retain talent um, in a quantitative firm? How do you maintain a culture that supports innovation? Because, you know, let, let's face it, um, investing in general is a competitive game, right? It's You've got lots of different firms. There's lots of smart people around the world. 
And, um, you know, a lot of them are looking at similar or, or the same uh, underlying information in terms of trying to make decisions, make investment decisions. So I, I think one of the key things is how do you set up your firm? Um, how do you allocate decision rights? Um, what's the degree of transparency internally in the firm? And I think both because of personal preference and a conviction that it, it works, um, one of our approaches has always been to have a high degree of internal transparency. Um, and what I mean by that is that we, we don't want silos. We don't want silos within the investment team, and we don't want to silo off the investment team from, from the rest of the firm. Um, so there's a, a big emphasis on a degree of collaboration um, between our investment team um, and other parts of the firm within the investment team and also with our clients. Um, because uh, even though if you're a quantitative firm, you may have uh, returns that are great in some periods that are more challenged than others, you need to be able to explain those returns to your clients. So while you don't want to sh give away your intellectual property to your competitors, you do need to be able to explain to your clients what's driving the returns in the portfolios that you're managing on their behalf. And to do that, um, it's really important to have a degree of transparency that's adequate to make sure clients feel like, yes, we get what they're doing, why they're doing what, what they're doing, and we have confidence uh, in both our understanding of their process and in the fact that that process is going to work longer term. So I'd argue that um, transparency is actually a really important cultural value uh, for firms. I know there are firms that have taken you know, different approaches uh, to it, but I think in, in our case, in Acadian's case, uh, that's something that's worked. Um, and then what goes along with that, of course, is emphasizing uh, collaboration. And um, uh, we, we don't want you know, someone to say, that's my model. We want someone to say, that's our model, um, you know, that we're all working together. Uh, our entire investment team and the entire firm really is working together in terms of trying to serve our clients and provide the best possible returns, um, the best possible risk management uh, to those clients. So you really got to, I think, emphasize collaboration. It helps that I think we're doing some uh, really interesting things. So I think if you've got smart, talented people who are thinking about careers, you know, there, there are some really interesting things we can do on the uh, investment management side, on the alpha generation and research side. And yes, you don't publish externally. You're not going to publish, you know, your newest model uh, in, in, you know, a journal but um, internally, you, you're still very much, there's still a very strong process of peer review. So you're really trying to do high quality research um, and share that with the team, take the team's feedback, and then uh, work to put that into the production model and, and have it work and have it add value. Um, that, that's really, you know, I think the, both the intellectual challenge, um, but also the, the, the satisfaction of knowing that that intellectual effort that uh, a really, you know, a researcher put in, a portfolio manager put in, is resulting in an outcome, you know, that, that's helping people, that's helping our clients do a better job of meeting their financial obligations. So many of our listeners are CFA charter holders, and um, lots of CFAs don't have a background in data science or uh, you know, software, um, but are still interested in getting involved in quantitative investing. What advice would you have for them? Yeah, I think you know it's it's a it's not a road that can't be walked, um, but it requires some effort. 
right? So if you if you have you know a lot of knowledge of of the land, investing landscape, you really understand you know company balance sheets. You can build earnings models, but you're not a Python programmer. Uh, you're not that great with SQL. Um, you know how do you get involved? Well, um, you know there's a there's table stakes to being capable of doing. Um, uh, machine learning work or um, managing data um, and and utilizing new sources of data and those table stakes you know are going to require you know some degree of skill now that all being said the the tools have gotten a lot better so um, today you know if you get a sort of a, a some facility with Python there's a lot of libraries that you can rely on that can apply a lot of these techniques um, and make it so you're not building everything from scratch. Uh, there's a lot of um, third-party open-source code that's available that that really you know give, makes it a lot easier to do things than maybe they they were you can you could do them um, you know years ago. Um, but I think it's still important that if you're going to be active as a quant as a practitioner quant practitioner, you need to have some facility um, with um, with software with writing software, editing software, um, maintaining it. Um, and if you don't, you you know, it's hard to even manage that effort unless you have that, that some basic skill set and some basic knowledge in those areas. And again, that being said, picking up that knowledge today is a lot easier. You don't have to go back to school. Um, there's plenty of online resources that can help you, um, you know, that can bring you up to speed. Um, it doesn't even, it doesn't require a lot of money. Um, it really just requires a, an interest and a commitment uh, to coming up to up to speed with these skills. So I've been spending a little bit of time looking at uh, 2021 market uh, forecasts and outlooks. And one of the themes, I guess, uh, that seems to be a major theme is that value stocks will come back. Um, but before we dive too deeply into that, I just want to give li listeners some context. And this is a quote that I read from a recent Bloomberg article. And it says, for the three years that ended in September 2020, growth beat value by a record 24 percentage points a year based on price to book, the worst three years for value in 100 years and by a wide margin. So uh, needless to say, the last few years have not really been very kind to, to value managers. What, what in your view has been uh, the drivers of value's recent underperformance and what conditions would make for a comeback? I mean, first of all, I just acknowledge um, it's been a crushing period for value, and any manager that had a extremely heavy value orientation uh, has has just had very difficult uh, performance. Quantitative managers uh, typically have a component of value, and how big a component does vary. Uh, but there's no question for most uh, quantitative managers that value had headwind has had a significant negative impact on their on the returns they would have otherwise generated. What's driven that? Why have we seen value do so poorly? Um, well, I, I think there's a couple of reasons. And, and one is uh, just acknowledge fundamentally, a lot of the companies that have done really well in growing profitability, um, uh, in benefiting you know, from platform effects, from, from the environment that we've seen, you know, are, are not value companies. And in past periods, like the TMT bubble back in the late 90s, for example, you had companies that achieved enormous valuations but their fundamentals never really caught up. They were always looking very, very expensive, and in many cases had no earnings, never grew their earnings significantly. That's not the case in this latest period. Uh, certainly, if you look at companies 
like Alphabet, you know, like Google, like Amazon, if you look at consumer tech companies, for example, uh, they have done a very good job of actually growing uh, their underlying fundamentals, growing their earnings, growing their cash flows, growing their revenues. And so um, part of what's happened is just it's been a different environment where um, you know there hasn't been as much mean reversion in the fundamentals as you've seen in prior periods. And therefore, you know, value sort of stayed behind, has, has continued trailing. Um, but the other part that's happened is that the uh, premium for these for these companies that have been able to generate growth, has grown. So the spread in valuation between value and growth stocks has grown. That's the part that I think is likely to be mean reverting. So when you hear people talk about values likely to come back, um, it's hard to talk about the timing of this. But clearly, as these um, spreads grow further and further, it, it, you know, it would, it would be uh, like expecting the growth rate to continue increasing. It's one thing to maintain a very high growth rate. It's another thing to increase that growth rate even further, and it becomes more and more difficult the larger companies get. So our, our expectation is also that value will make a comeback. Um, I think we're maybe more skeptical on knowing exactly what the timing of that comeback is. It may have started already, you know, value's off to a good start in January, but you could have said that in a couple of the previous years as well, and it, it, they haven't turned out that way. So I think it's important to manage risk by essentially as a quant, by having a diversified set of positions in your portfolio, some of which are value driven, um, but also to consider other characteristics, growth related characteristics, uh, quality characteristics, uh, things like uh, technical characteristics, momentum, top down effects. You know, there's lots of different components that can go into building a portfolio. Value should be one of those. Um, but um, if anything, the last decade has shown us that it should not be the only one, that you've got to consider other types of factors as well. Right. Can you tell us a bit about uh, Acadian's approach to value investing? And I guess related to that, how your quant skills help you compete with other value managers? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, if you go back again, several decades, you know, uh, and, and this is sort of all we had then, you know, price book, price earnings, price sales, you know, had, you had certain fundamental ratios. And um, there just there wasn't the data availability at the time to really dive more deeply. I think today, um, uh, what you can do is you, you have access to a lot more information, not just more detailed financial information, but other kinds uh, of information. So for example, when you're talking about value, and you look at, um, you know, value relative to what? Um, how do you measure value? I mean, it, the it, rise of intangibles in terms of how companies are priced is important. So if you're talking about technology companies, you know, what are they spending on R&D? What kind of value is that R&D creating? And how do you measure that when in financial accounting in the US typically R&D is written off, is expensed as it's incurred, um, but in, in reality, you know, that R&D is creating value in the future. So you've got to measure that in some way. And the same thing goes for other kinds of um, things that may be expensed based on gap on, on generally accepted accounting principles, but uh, that, that actually contribute to um, a company's ability to earn and to generate cash flows in the future. Um, so the long-winded way of saying uh, it's become more complicated to measure valuation. And it's very important, we found, to measure it in some other ways beyond the simplistic ratios that investors were using 20 and 30 years ago. 
Um, it, what helps to, in terms of doing that is not just access to that data, but also to have an infrastructure that allows you to quickly and effectively evaluate once you've constructed a particular measure of value, how effective that measure is across different industries, different markets across different accounting conventions. Um, you know, it, it really allows you to tell, you know, how heavily should you weight a particular type of, of valuation measure in your process. And that's sort of another part beyond just actually having the signals and the ideas. Um, that's another part of, um, of running a quantitative investment process that's very important. So when we were chatting before, I think you'd mentioned that Acadian started out primarily as an equities shop, and now you take a multi-asset approach. Um, so some economic and behavioral trends you know, tend to be expressed across many asset classes. So for example, risk on risk off sentiment might move the oil price, interest rates, equity indices, the Japanese yen, sort of all in concert. Does your approach look to leverage um, a particular common theme across asset classes, or are you looking to uh, diversify by exploiting different causal factors? Yeah, I, I, in, in our approach, so just to, in, in boy reference, you know, we have had an equity set of equity strategy we've run for a long time. These multi-asset strategies, uh, we've been, um, we started developing these about five years ago. Um, and so uh, the track record there is a little bit shorter than it is in our equity side. Um, but what we found is that um, while a lot of the common themes apply, so when you take things that work at the equity market level and you apply them, say, in, in commodities or in fixed income, you know, the, the concept is similar, but the, um, the application of it, the implementation of it can be very different. Um, and so it's, it's very important to say you, you, need a, you need a rationale, right? Why is there an inefficiency here? What's driving this? Is this an informational inefficiency, a behavioral bias? Um, you know, what, what's likely to result in the persistence of this inefficiency? Um, and there's good stories around like value, as an example, right? There's a, there's a decent, uh, despite value not working um, over the last, certainly over the last three years, I'd argue over the last 10 years, it really hasn't worked effectively in equity selection. Um, when you take measures of valuation, you look at them in other areas, um, you can find that in, in some areas they've actually worked pretty well over this period. Um, but they're different. They're not measures of value, value that are the same measures you would use as applied to equities. Um, if you're looking at commodities, you know, looking at supply and demand measures uh, are useful. And you can argue semantics about what category should those fall in. Uh, but we would argue, you know, there's a fairly broad quality category that applies to both equities and and in, in commodity markets as well. Uh, that's very useful. So the point is, um, the concepts may be similar, but the the underlying signals that you're using uh, differ quite a bit uh, depending on which asset class you're looking at. So in the last year or so, or certainly more recent years, we've seen quite a big rise in ESG investing. And I'd love to hear a bit more about Acadian's uh, ESG philosophy. Um, and I'd also like to know how uh, you differentiate, I guess, your quant ESG approach from other ESG sort of quant-themed offerings. I think ESG is very important for two reasons. You know, one is it's important to our clients. You know, many of our clients, and this started in Europe and, and in Australia, but it, it's really a global phenomenon. Many clients uh, put a lot of weight on ESG issues when they're determining how they want to invest and which managers they want to work with. And then the second thing is our employees. I mean, I think 
you know, there's a, a some degree of generational change um, in the investment industry. And I think a lot of people coming into the industry, yes, they want challenging intellectual problems. Um, they'd like to see the, uh, you know, some financial rewards, uh, but uh, they also feel, want to feel like they're doing something positive in the world. And it's important to them to, um, you know, to, to, to do, to invest in a way that is consistent with their, their personal beliefs and views. Uh, so we, we've treated ESG as something that's important. And we've often had a view, a lot for a long time had a view that um, these kinds of themes can be beneficial in terms of generating investment outcomes. Um, what we found when we're applying ESG uh, is that a lot of the information that you'd want to rely on doesn't really come from traditional sources. Um, it can come from news and media sources, from third parties like NGOs, um, and collecting it and um, processing it to, in, a, in a useful form is really an important part of utilizing ESG. So just to give you an example of um, types of things that we would want to look at, one thing is, can you measure um, things related to employee well-being? So the idea is that a more engaged, more committed employees result in better business outcomes, that that's not captured well, that investors don't discount that very well because they don't really have good, good reads on um, especially at sort of smaller and mid-sized companies, how engaged, how committed employees are uh, in those businesses. And to get measures, of those kinds of measures, to get reads on that, you really need to go to more non-traditional non sources of information in order to access uh, that, that kind of data. Um, and it takes quite a bit of digging. You can't just utilize, you know, there's large providers of ESG data uh, but we found that their measures don't have a lot of predictive value. You really need to dig in more. Another example would be measures of carbon exposure, you know, environmental-related issues. And those can be very useful, but you really need to make sure you can adjust those for the current environment that the companies are operating in. Uh, you know, so different markets have different ways to regulate uh, carbon emissions, taxes, uh, regulatory uh, uh, penalties, or not, or lack thereof. And you, again, you really just need to be careful that you understand what's the environment that companies are operating in, and therefore how is that carbon exposure priced uh, in different in different environments? Uh, would that would be another uh, example? Um, so, so it's really ESG uh, issues matter quite a bit. Um, certainly, governance, social, and environmental issues all have an impact on returns. Um, it's complicated to measure them. It's data intensive. And you, it's very hard to just uh, subscribe to a data source and say, okay, here's all our ESG data, because we find we found anyway that that's not particularly productive in terms of adding investment value. And when we incorporate ESG in Acadian's process, you know, we want to make sure that we're doing it, you know, both because it's it's the right thing to do, but also because it's adding investment value uh, to our process in some way. So, John, uh, you joined uh, Acadian as one of the founders back in 1987. So you've had more than three decades of experience as a professional investor. And I'm wondering, what are some of the lessons you have learned over that time that could be uniquely helpful to understanding the current environment? You know, I, I guess I, I'd say, um, you know, some of these lessons are, are um, a, a little bit cliche, but, um, but they're, they're still valid. Uh, one is that you know markets can stay irrational longer than investors can stay solvent. So this is sort of like looking at say the last ten years of value returns. Um, you know value's got to 
very good long-term track record when you say long-term is 30 or 40 years, um, but it, it hasn't over the last 10 years. And somebody who's really committed to you know, purely a value approach and lacked effective risk management, you know, there's companies that have gone out of business in the last couple of years um, you know, just because their returns have been so challenging in an environment uh, that uh, really value struggled in as much as it did. So it's important to have the bottom line is it's important to have effective risk management um, in your in in your approach, whether that's a fundamental approach or a quantitative approach. Um, even when you're convinced that over time markets are going to come around and reward you know what your what your view is. So um, another example of that outside of value would be emerging markets equities right now um, have become incredibly concentrated. If you look at the benchmarks, you know the top five companies make up something like 25% plus of the of the emerging markets benchmarks. And so if you have a, a portfolio that's not doesn't have effective risk management in it, um, if you've got had a, a huge bias against those companies because they've typically looked expensive on on different measures. So there's a valuation component there as well. Um, but or, or just you like very highly diversified portfolios. Uh, emerging markets have, has been a little bit more of a struggle typically for those kinds of managers. Um, so again, it just makes it just points to the importance not just of having a good source of alpha, a good uh, ability to pick securities, whether that again that's fundamentally driven or, or quantitative, but also uh, an effective risk management approach that allows you to get through periods where your your alpha signals aren't working as well as they have historically. Um, and, and I guess the other one is just, you know, staying the course is hard. This is related. Staying the course is hard when short-term results are poor. And I'll give you one more example of that. Um, uh, there's a set of strategies that have been sort of of interest to investors for the last 10, 15 years, these low volatility strategies. So low volatility equity strategies, for example. And um, in 2020, uh, low vol strategies generally did very poorly. Um, uh, so there were there was a huge gap between the returns of low vol strategies and between cap weighted benchmark returns. Um, historically, low vol strategies over the long term have generated about, depending on which types of strategies, 70, 80 percent of benchmark risk and and match the benchmark return. So 2020 really stands out as a, a not very good year for low vol. Um, uh, but it's the results are sort of within historic bounds, right? It's not um, in a year that ended up up pretty strongly. Um, it's not something that's sort of outside the pale. Um, and so it's predictable that every now and then you're going to have a year like 2020 for low vol strategies. Some investors, I think, given the results in that year, you know, have lost some confidence in the approach, even though it was predictable uh, that you would have a year like this. So it's just important, I think, both as an investor to to think, you know, when is something a bad outcome, but it's within sort of the bounds of expectations, and the underlying thesis is still still um, applicable. So you want to stay the course, and when do you really need to reconsider uh, the approach? Um, and I think uh, in this example, the lowball example, I would say this is probably a good time to stay the course. Um, but clearly, not all investors are, are on the same page uh, in that respect. 
So in our last few minutes, we get to, to play the, the closing question game. Uh, and last year I started out, um, it was the beginning of COVID. Um, I decided to add sort of one question that I asked every guest uh, on the show, what I called the ray of sunshine question, just trying to end the conversation on something positive. I've now gone into two questions and today I'm gonna add a third. So we'll start with the first one, the ray of sunshine question. What is one positive long-term change that you hope to see as a result of the pandemic? I, I think one of the things that I hear from, I, I try to talk to, you know, we've got close to 400 employees at Acadia, and I try to talk to uh, many of them, um, even the ones I don't work with day to day, um, just, just to have an ability to stay in touch and hear what they're thinking. And one of the things I've heard consistently is that employees really value the flexibility of working remotely. And while it's true that some people work remotely prior to COVID, I think the broad exposure, the fact that in the investment industry anyway, um, most or maybe all employees had an opportunity to work remotely for a period of time, and that firms proved that they can, they can operate effectively, they can work productively in a remote environment, uh, means that it's very likely going forward that, um, that uh, people who work in investment firms are going to have more flexibility in their working arrangements going forward. It may not be that they're gonna work remotely full-time like many have during the COVID period, uh, but that extra flexibility you know, has enormous set of value. When I talk to um, parents who have younger children at home, uh, when I talk to folks who are in you know, caregiver situations, um, uh, trying to support other family members in different ways, um, you can you can get your work done, but have some more flexibility in terms of how you go about and exactly when you go about doing it and where you go about doing it. And saving on the commute uh, is huge for folks who live in our part of the country. Um, Boston commutes, just like commutes in say New York City or other some of the other large metro areas, uh, can be fairly extensive, and um, and that's just a net savings uh, for for individuals. Uh, so I, I think that would be one thing I'd characterize as a positive uh, outcome uh, from the from the pandemic. So the second question is, uh, I call it the NASA question, and it's actually a NASA education question. And you are uniquely suited to answer this question because I should just let listeners know that uh, you were an aspiring rocket scientist, that when you went to college at MIT, your passion was building or designing spaceships. So the question I've been asking uh, all my guests in the last few months is, you're about to go on a long duration space flight. You can take just one item with you. What item do you take? You know, I'd want to think about that more, but the first uh, thing that pops into mind is uh, Kindle or something like that. Just something, you know, it's fantastic. I used to carry, you know, books with me when I went, when I traveled to see clients or went to meetings. And, you know, you have two or three or four books with you to run through a couple of days of, of travel um, on airplanes and so on. And today, you just download whatever you want on, on your device and you can just read it anywhere you want. It's lightweight. It's backlit. Um, so, so for me, that would be something that would be very important to have. Is just the ability to access anything anybody's written anywhere, um, and just be able to read it on on the Kindle. I find, um, you know, there's so much. It's usually there's more interesting content than there is time to go through it, um, and and this just gives me an ability to access it in a very convenient way. 
So the final question, and this is the first time I'm asking this question, and you're our first uh, studio guest for 2021, uh, so you get to be the first one to answer this. And here it is. So flight or invisibility, and whichever you pick, uh, you'll be the only person in the world to have the superpower. Which do you pick and what do you do with it? I, I was not expecting that question. Um, I would say, uh, um, I would say um, either one would be, you know, quite interesting. But um, I would probably go with the, um, uh, you know, with the uh, the flight. The invisibility seems a little bit uh, too. It's like seeing things that you're not supposed to see. That doesn't really <laughs> sound that appealing. So the flight is like, wow, I could, you know, I could just go up and, and go anywhere, um, not be stuck in traffic. Um, so I, I guess I would go with flight on that. Great. Well, thanks for being a good sport on that one. That was a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, John, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the show today. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you very much. Take care out there. Be safe. Bye-bye yep. now. Thanks. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.